right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. My name's Jesse Jones, and today on the program, we have Dr. Sonnet Berniker Hart from Koval. Just amazing, amazing conversation with this lady. She is so incredibly smart. Uh, they're doing great things in Chicago. She walks me through the history of Koval, how she personally helped usher in the ability to distill in Chicago. Uh, it hadn't happened since Prohibition, and she was on the ground floor of that, how her husband brought over the still technology that they're using from Germany, how they're really just innovators of the bourbon industry. That She was so much fun to talk to, guys. I think you're really going to like this conversation. I know I just couldn't get enough. And, and we sit and we go through and we drink some of her spirits and each one of them it brings its own thing to the table uh, the rye the uh, foregrain the bourbon they were all just so good and and she's so knowledgeable about them so this really was a phenomenal conversation a good talk uh, sonnet you were just a pleasure to have on the show thank you so much or I should say dr Berniker Hart you were so much fun to have on the show we appreciate your time we talked for well over an hour and a half, and I enjoyed every minute of it. So without further ado, we're going to keep it short up top. We do ask you to click subscribe, click like, do all the things we always ask you to do. If you find us on Instagram, if you find us on YouTube, iTunes, whatever, just give us give us the thing you want to give us. And if you don't, that's cool too. Just enjoy the show. We want to thank Will Jones for the music you're hearing in the background and in the intro. My name is Jesse Jones. This is the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. Let's start the show. Thank you for being on the show today. Pleasure. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We have Dr. Sonnet Berniker Hart from Koval uh, out of Chicago. Uh, how are you today? I'm great. Very glad to be here. I appreciate you coming on. It's, uh, it's been so fun talking to everybody with this first season and I've been super excited to talk to you because you guys are doing something that like nobody else is really doing right now. You guys are pushing the boundaries a little bit. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't claim that we're the only ones pushing boundaries. I think that within the craft sphere, everyone is pushing boundaries in one way or another, but we're excited to, to be a part of this wonderful industry. Oh, very true. Well said. Well said. So uh, could you start by just giving our viewers a short history of Koval and the products that you offer? Absolutely. So Koval started in 2008 uh, when my husband and I decided to leave our careers and move to the city we love, Chicago, and start the first distillery since the mid-1800s. And we wanted to create spirits that were in the tradition of Robert's family. He comes from three generations of distillers in Austria. And because in Austria, they distill more brandies than they do other spirits, although they do make, you know, a wide range of spirits, uh, we decided to use a brandy tradition of distilling and apply that to whiskey, which meant that we use only the heart cut of the distillate, which is something very common for brandy makers all over Europe, Central Europe, Austria, Switzerland, Germany, France. But we applied it to whiskey, which is, you know, at the time was not very common in America because American whiskey distillers would usually include some of the tails into the barrel. And okay. so 
that was one of the ways we wanted to differentiate ourselves. And the other way is we wanted to use some fun alternative grains. So we've got, uh, you know, oat plays a role in a lot of our spirits as well as, you know, we have um, millet is another one. And then we work with some other fun things too. Now, what is millet? Oh, millet is a really interesting grain. It's actually the most popular grain in other parts of the world, just not in this part of the world. In fact, if you uh, buy distilled spirits in Nepal, most of them are made out of millet. It's a grain that is actually basic as opposed to acidic, which is a little fun fact. Um, And it sort of is uh, the habit in which it grows. It looks like little, little beads. It's really, it's really beautiful and it mashes gorgeous. I mean, it, it turns into almost vanilla frosting. So when we mash it, so it's a fun grain to work with. It's a really interesting taste. And, uh, you know, we think that it brings a different element to some of the spirits that we make. And and that's what I love about you guys. You've got millet, you've got oat on top of your rye and your four grain and your, and your bourbon. Uh, it's just so much fun to see you guys out there putting things that you're picking up from other parts of the world and, and bringing them to the masses here in the States. Yeah. And, and another thing I like about your story, you were a professor and you mm-hmm. left your tenure to come make whiskey. Yes, I was. I mean, you know, uh, academia leads to whiskey one way or another, but uh, <laughs> for me, I, you know, I focused on a lot of um, cultural history and literature and women's studies and Jewish studies and German historical uh, fiction and, uh, you know, a lot of German and Austrian history and culture, primarily. My focus was also 1890 to 1938, and, and I did a lot about the culture of Vienna and Berlin. Oh, wow. I, I love German folklore. Uh, my wife's family is actually German. So we've been her. her she still has relatives uh, in the Black Forest. So it, that was what's that? Wunderbar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I actually I made my stripes with them when uh, we went to visit last time. And I don't speak. I speak very poor German and her cousin did not speak any English. So we had one common denominator and that was drink. So her uh, cousin's daughter wrote a note on a sheet of paper that said he thinks he can drink. So she she slid that over. It was so much fun. She slid it over to him. He reads the paper. He goes, ah, and then breaks out a bottle of just pure schnapps, like pure hundred proof schnapps. And we proceed to the only thing we said to each other the entire night. And we had a full conversation. We had full, like, like we enjoyed each other's company for hours, but the only thing we had, and I will probably mispronounce it now, Prost. Exactly. Prost is very important. Very important. So yeah, no, it's wonderful. Germany has so many great spirits and great schnapps too. I mean, so many different kinds of schnapps and, and you can, you can find, you know, really wild ones. There's a Topinampur, which is made out of uh, Jerusalem artichokes, which oh, I wow. find delicious. So next time you're there, look for that. That's a really fun one that you can't find really anywhere else. Although we made it, but it's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And that was one of my favorite things is like the misconceptions Americans have on what schnapps is. Like, I think we kind of 
put it in our brain as one little thing that you get like like there's peppermint schnapps like that's about where we we keep schnapps in our mindset is it's yeah. that sweet thing that you add to something where it's actually its own thing with this uh, expansive uh, t flavor profile. Oh, there's so many different kinds. I mean, they make them out of different kinds of berries and and fruits. I mean, it's really brandy, but it's it's a it's a very wide interpretation of many different kinds of brandy. I mean, you can make brandy out of really anything. I, I've even heard there's even brandy out of turnips. So, oh they, wow, they get, they get really creative over there. I would love to see the uh, what's going on economically when you turn to turnips. Yeah, it's not going to put anyone through college, but uh, it would definitely be fun. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you were studying uh, German history, uh, I, I think I, I love German folklore. I think so much, uh, so many of the stories that we were probably not anymore now that everything's on like um, uh, Amazon Prime. But all of the like Peter and the Wolf and Hansel and Gretel and all of those old folk folklore stories made their way over from that background. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We get a lot of stories from from that part of the world. So and, and a lot of culture. I mean, and I, I dealt with a lot of cultural history. And so, you know, I, I looked at the you know history of, of fashion photography, the history of ready to wear clothing, the history. I mean, so many of these things were were happening in Germany and Austria. I mean, Coffeehouse Society. You know, that's Vienna and Berlin uh, and, uh, you know, short forms of literature, uh, cabaret. You know, these were all the things that I dealt with. I love I loved all the culture. It was it was really great stuff. So and, and that, that's where I geek out. I, I love I love stuff like that. And just learning the background of where certain things came from. And mm -hmm. you mentioned Vienna, your family originally migrated over from Vienna, correct? Yeah. Yes, they came from Vienna, although I do have some family from Germany, from Metzelman. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, her grandfather was from Austria and then the rest of the family, and they're going to reach out and tell me I'm getting all of this 100% correct, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't absorb too much uh, uh, of what they were telling me because they were feeding me schnapps the entire time. Exactly. There you go. There you go. <laughs> at, at that point, you could just make it up, you know? <laughs> you, exactly. You came from a castle <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> Big castle. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're, if you're going to uh, start a, if you're going to start a tale, all you got to do is throw one or two things into it. And it's probably going to go back to something in German history. Exactly. For sure. We toured the, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, Neuschwanstein Castle while we were there. And and that was freaking just the, the backstory to that thing is insane. Yeah. So, yeah. A full political, uh, you, you've got conspiracy, you've got complete <laughs> aristocratic crapulence. Like you've got yeah. it all in the history of that thing. You, Absolutely. Sugar and sweets. Oh, you got it. You got it. <laughs> Sorry, I geek out a little bit when it comes to that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, uh, great. So you were, uh, that was teaching what took you to Germany, where you met your husband? Actually, I met him in Washington, D.C., uh, but uh, I was teaching in Berlin for a number of years. And I went to, you know, I did all my graduate work in England. So, uh, but I, I met my husband in, in D.C. right actually before I left to go to Germany. And he followed me there, which was oh. great. So there you go. That either goes one of two ways. It's either very romantic or very creepy. You know, Robert is uh, a very determined individual. 
<laughs> it's it's that it's that Austrian coming out that once they set their mind to something. Exactly, it's great. Her grandfather used to tell the story, and the older he got, the uh, he would leave certain parts of it out. Like mm-hmm. I, I I came to America on a donkey. Like <laughs> well, you got on a boat at some time, right, Papa? On a donkey. Like okay, okay. <laughs> We're not going to argue with you. Did the I donkey it. make it? Donkey did not make it. <laughs> oh boy yeah so uh he followed you to germany and (laughs) and were you in germany when you decided that you were going back to the states it it was right after we left germany we we'd really enjoyed being in berlin and being together and sort of working close closely you know he was working at the embassy austrian embassy there or the, the consulate there and I, you know, I was at the university in Humboldt and, you know, we, we walked everywhere. It was really a, sort of a different existence than than D.C. And so when we moved back to D.C. after, uh, you know, I, I decided to go back to the States, you know, we really figure out um, what we wanted to do. You know, and if we were going to stay in in D.C. and we, we originally thought we would stay and we started house hunting. And we had saved $30,000 to make a down payment on a home. But after looking through all of these different homes in our price range, and this is before the crash, this is like 2007, right. uh, they were just too expensive for us. And the ones that we could afford that we sort of liked, you know, they needed a lot of work and they uh-huh. had a basement. And we started thinking, maybe this just isn't what we want to do. Maybe we just don't want to settle down here. Maybe we want to do something completely different. And so we ultimately decided that we wanted to have a family business. We wanted to live in a city we loved. We wanted to be close to family. And, you know, we wanted to be able to do something together and be able to teach our children at the same time. And so we we packed up, we left. People thought we were a little crazy. And we moved to Chicago and started the first distillery. I mean, it was, it was really um, a leap of faith. And, I, you know, we're, we're glad we did because, I mean, not just because it worked out, but because it afforded us, you know, an opportunity to do all those things and to be close to family. And I know a lot of couples, you know, think about when they're living far away from their parents and their parents are getting older, you know, we, we just really appreciated the opportunity to be here, you know, as my, as my father was ill and say, you know, it's like, these are things that you don't necessarily think about, but when you're close by, you're really happy. And so we're really happy we did that. And that was that. That is amazing. Uh, my wife and I have a similar, we were in New York for about 15 years and it was the same thing. We were looking for a place to live. We already had one kid. We had another one on the way. And, mm-hmm. and just like DC, you start looking at what you're going to get for the money you're putting into it. And we did the same. It was, we're from North care. I'm from North Carolina. She came home with me to North Carolina, but uh, mm-hmm. those little things, those little tales that uh, while you're looking, we literally yeah. had a hawk dive bomb the car as we were coming back from one of the houses and, and just exploded on the side of the car. And we looked at each other like, first off, we're looking in Valhalla, which translates to, I think, hell. So and then the hawk starts going after us. I've got a weird relationship with animals already. Hawks specifically do not like me. Uh I don't know. I don't know what I did. Uh, I, I've been hanging squirrels from trees for them for the past two years, trying to make amends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, 
I, I feel like there are little tells, you know, and, and little things that, you know, you can choose to follow them or not. But uh, I think that sometimes they do sort of push you in, in the right direction. And, and we got pushed and uh, we're really, really glad that we decided to do it. And it afforded us an opportunity to become a part of this amazing industry. So. And you, you it, it happened organically. Like, that's the great part. Like, you weren't at a place where you had to. You chose right. to. And right. You made a conscientious decision to move into something that he already had a solid footing in just uh, in terms of an understanding of being a third generation distiller. And Mm -hmm. tell me about how you chose Chicago and you get to Chicago first. It was the 60s, right? It's a very Chicago sort of story in that, you know, I being that I'm from Chicago, I I knew that it would probably behoove me to reach out to the various aldermen in the areas of the city where we thought that we wanted to have our distillery. So I sent out about 10 letters to different parts of the city that had a really nice mix of industrial or light industrial and that had some... Um, you know, places where we could live and work close by. Uh, And I received two responses. And one response came right away pretty quickly via phone. And it was uh, Alderman Gene Schulter. And he said, you know, I like this idea. I want you to be in my ward. I got a guy. He's got a place. When are you you next in town? And so (laughs) that is sort of how we chose where we ended up um, because we had really, truly a lot of help from our aldermen who guided us um, and introduced us to an amazing uh, landlord who really also was was a, a complete mensch in helping us um, throughout the years as we grew, you know, finding extra space for us. He even had a big warehouse where he kept a bunch of classic cars and we'd grown out of our space and we weren't going to be able to take over another space because of, you know, timing for an, another month or two. And yet a ship of glass was like landing and we needed to put put it somewhere and he said well you could put it right behind all my classic cars and I said you're gonna let us drive a forklift (laughs) past these very amazing classic cars like like the kind you see in a bond movie and like you know from the 60s and he's like I trust you (laughs) so you know it's like we you know it was really amazing we we were very very lucky and so we we got to start um, on the north side of Chicago, not too far from Wrigley Field, where the Cubs play, and uh, that's really where we started. And but you know, interestingly enough, you know, when we started, there was not much we could do by way of reaching out to consumers or having people you know learn about us, you know, from coming into the distillery because it wasn't legal at the time. In fact, the laws in Illinois were incredibly antiquated when we started. They hadn't been changed since prohibition. I had to go down to Springfield, you know, pregnant with my second son, you know, multiple drives down there to try and get a law passed to make it possible to have a craft distiller's license. So once we got that passed, it completely changed and revolutionized craft distilling in the state of Illinois because all of a sudden you were then allowed to do tours. You were allowed to do tastings on site. You could have retail on site, none of which was possible until this was changed. So until we got this passed, you know, the whole front of the distillery, which eventually became, you know, our retail store and where we do tours, 
was really like a play area for the kids with little squishy mats and slides and bookshelves. And, and it was hilarious because people would walk by the distillery and they would knock on the door and they'd say, oh, I'd like to sign my kids up. And they said, well, we are a distillery. And they would say, oh, wait, aren't you, you know, it looks like you're, you're, you know, like some kid, you know, daycare. And I'm like, no. The Koval daycare. Exactly. Koval daycare. Exactly. I was like, no, my kids just are with me at work. And, and so, you know, it was, it was fun. Every once in a while, we'd open the garage door and put out the, uh, the, you know, the water, you know, like the water splash thing and all the little neighborhood kids would come and (laughs) splash around and, and, you know, right on the outside of the distillery area. Um, But, you know, it, once we were able to have the retail component, that's when things really started changing and people were able to come in and learn about what we do and how we do things differently. And, uh, you know, that, that made a huge difference. That was really a watershed moment. Oh, I can only imagine because then you're able to actually make some money uh, and and educate and inform and let people know what you're doing. How difficult was it to get the law changed? Because Chicago in prohibition, I I could see, like I was talking to uh, Dan Garrison from Texas and the laws that he had to get changed in Texas were crazy. So what was it coming from somewhere where prohibition really, really has a historical, how, how hard was it to get that done? You know, it took perseverance. Uh, It was interesting. There were a lot of fun characters. And I was told, you know, by one of the uh, older gentlemen that I ran into in Springfield, you know, when I expressed my, my sort of shock at the nature of this whole experience of getting the law changed and, and the various characters that I came into contact with. And, you know, he said, you know, there are two things you never want to see being made, sausage and legislation. So I, I got to see how it was made. It was really interesting. In fact, my senator, you know, as I was sitting in her office uh, when we were about to take it to the floor and I was going to sort of testify and, you know, we're, we're surrounded by lobbyists that were against me that did not want me to get this changed. All men, starch suits, um, really interesting characters, about 10 of them in her office and then just me and her. And uh, as after they all left, um, after some very interesting exchanges, she then said, you know, and I thought healthcare was crazy. (laughs) You know, it's, it worked out. It worked out and it worked out well. And at the end of the day, it was fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed the challenge and, and it was it was fun and we got it done. And, and we've actually changed it multiple times since then to increase the gallonage for craft. Um, we're working on actually today, I'm working on some other legislation to try and create some remedies for uh, craft distillers who are not able to deliver products to people. Uh, and during this time, during the pandemic, that that is kind of important. So we're working on we're working on always adjusting and, and, and making it better. It's an adventure. Oh, completely. And it sounds like you are uh, up for the task. What were the old starched suits? What were, what was their logic? I'm always interested to hear why people do not want the uh, laws to change. And what, what were they saying when you were in that room? You know, what they were saying doesn't matter. What they wanted was to keep, the three-tier system ironclad. 
Ah, and okay. so uh, that's what they want. They do not want any manufacturer to have any special privileges whatsoever because they want everything to go through all three tiers. And, you know, that's an antiquated model, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and while I think that it serves its purpose in some ways, um, I think that it needed to be updated. And so we updated it. Just so matter of fact, like that's that's like a movie line right there. We updated it. <laughs> that's awesome. So now you've got the permit. You've got everything where it needs to be, so you can start distilling. Uh, is is this where the still comes in? Our still, you know, uh, where the still comes in is actually interesting. You know when. You know, when we were starting to get everything organized, you know, we, as I said, we had like $30,000. And in addition to that, you know, and this still costs more than that. And so we had to figure out what we could do. And we did something that I highly do, I do not recommend. So don't, don't do this at home. But we, we uh, had a bunch of offers for credit cards uh, that were 0% financing for a year that you could transfer balances to. So we like did transfer, 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 and cash out, <laughs> cash out. And so we had a lot of money um, thanks to Visa, MasterCard, American Express, you know, you name it. Um, the Kevin which- Smith model. Yeah, it was, it wasn't a, it was a very motivating model though. You know, you were thinking you were counting down the months to when Mm -hmm. you had to pay 26%. So we had to figure out ways to use our intellectual capital, however we possibly could to make some more money at the very beginning. And it actually uh, really helped us in many ways. So what we did is, is, you know, we, we started out by, you know, in, in our own research for which still we wanted to purchase. And I, I mean, Robert knew a lot of the companies already because of his, his grandfather, but we didn't necessarily want to settle on the company that his grandfather used. We really wanted to find out for ourselves as well, but we had some good starting places, but we reached out to all of the companies. We really had a very good lay of the land of who was making what, what differentiated their still technology, uh, and really did a deep dive into all of this. But in doing this, we also recognized, wow, a bunch of these companies, they, they don't have their stills, trans, you know, their websites translated into English. They are not selling in America. We started recognizing things that we could do or offer that would help us grow. And, you know, were, were things that we wanted to learn anyway and, and things that we'd be excited to do anyway. So we started up relationships with uh, uh, the still manufacturer that we chose uh, after a lot of research that we really wanted to work with and started working hand in hand with them. That's Cota Distillationstechnik. Uh, and we then, um, you know, in, in doing that, we learned a lot, very like a lot about still technology, what was out there, different concepts. And it also um, put us in good stead when, after we got started, we started receiving many, many phone calls from people saying, I've been distilling in my backyard for years and I just read the article about you guys in the Tribune and we want to go legit. And I said, well, first of all, don't go around telling people you're distilling in your backyard, you know, (laughs) unless you like to wear an orange jumpsuit. And then I said, secondly, you know, I'm happy to help you. And you, because I'm an educator and, and so is Robert, you know, we, I would be on the phone. I'd be talking to them, but I'd be like mashing. I'd have like the phone like this. I'd be like nursing. It was just really inconvenient to be doing that all the time. <laughs> so 
we started saying, you know, come to our workshop. And so then, you know, it became it became sort of our second business or a vertical business model where we started Cota Distilling Technologies, which is our consulting company, where we helped other people choose which stills they wanted because we knew about what was out there, but we, we worked with Cota uh, pretty exclusively, but we could also help them find their mash tanks and their bottling lines and really start a, a turnkey operation. I could also help them with methods for getting legislation changed. And we then started up a relationship with the TTB because our, uh, our TTB, TB sort of inspector happened to live two blocks away. So <laughs> great fun when you live two blocks from your TTB inspector. No, oh, but I mean, he, he was lovely. And, and so this was at a time when craft distilling was really getting going. You know, when we started, there were, I think, only 24 DSPs in the entire United States. And now there are about over 2,000. So when we started, there was definitely an interest, um, you know, the federal government was interested in making sure that people doing this did it right. right. So they joined our workshop. So then we had like the TTB and we had, you know, we, we really started offering these workshops. We ended up educating about 3,500 people and how to get started and start distilleries. They've came from all over the world. We have set up turnkey completely over 200 distilleries around the world. Um, many craft distilleries uh, that I'm sure you've heard of, as well as we set up the largest uh, distillery in Uganda, the first distillery in Jerusalem. Um, you know, really it's been quite a wild ride. So this is what happens when you feel really motivated to pay off your credit card debt. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. And that's how I've, I heard about you guys, of course, from your distilling and the types of grains that you were using. But then as I've been doing this, I've heard so many people talk about you in where they got their still from. You guys yeah. have become like the gatekeepers. And <laughs> well, yeah, we like to be the gate openers uh, <laughs> and help people uh, get going and get started and feel confident that, that they can make it. And uh, so that's been a really rewarding part of everything that we've done. I think it's such a smart business model too, because not only are you in production and distilling, but you you also have this operational workflow that you've been able to translate into a secondary business. I, that to me is is just awesome. I think that's very interesting, and and how you've been able to perfect it to such a degree. Where did you say two hundred or three hundred? Oh, it's over 200 now, Good over Lord. 200. And, and that doesn't include the ones that we've like sold equipment to. I'm, I'm talking about like complete turnkey. They didn't know anything about distilling. Like they were a former weatherman or it was somebody who, as you were saying, like wanted, wanted to, to switch their career or, um, and, and we taught them how to do it. We got them started. We hooked them up with all their equipment. We set them up. Um, and then, Help, you know, help to help them get going. That's amazing. Have you guys ever thought about maybe uh, going in like when you help somebody set up and you, you forgo your fee if they've got a good product and you could take like 5% of what they're going to do and be partners with them? No, they, it's their, it's their show. Let them, let them have their own show. Totally. Totally. So that's my operational brain kicking in just the back end of it all. I'm sure there are others that, that do that and, and would do that. But I mean, the way we feel like, you know, we're, we want to do our own thing and we want to help other people do their own thing. Beautiful. 
That's a great mindset to have. And it's working because again, so many people that I've talked to, they're like, Oh yeah, we got our still. We were, we, you, you know, Koval. I was like, Oh, talking <laughs> to them in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. I mean, and it also helps us, you know, we keep learning, we, we keep helping, you know, different people have different projects that they want to work on. And so we're helping them troubleshoot these projects. And I mean, we've made all sorts of wild things for other people, uh, you know, from Baiju to, you, you know, all sorts of stuff. So it's been, it helps us have even more fun. It's just more, more part of the adventure. Totally. And when you're setting up in another country, like the guidelines and the laws you had to go through and change in America, is it easier or is it a little more wild west when you're setting up a distillery in Uganda? Well, the distillery in Uganda was very organized because the entire town was only this business. Like oh, wow. the whole town was the, the, the company it's they, they make sh- their sugar refinery. And so this is, they also make candy and then now they also make rum. So yeah. it's, it's like, <laughs> there wasn't anything there, but this business and everybody who worked for this business. So I think it really depends. I mean, some places, you know, in Europe, there are other, uh, there are other difficulties that people have, you know, based on, um, you know, having to have a locked system, you know, that, that is completely locked down so that it determines exactly how, like to every drop, what comes off the still. And so there are those kinds of things. I mean, Canada posed a number of um, challenges in the beginning, you know, as craft started developing because their laws also were, were somewhat antiquated and, you know, helping, helping people get started and, um, you know, it, it's every everywhere has its own challenge. And in fact, every single state does. And even sometimes within a state, depending on where you're County. located, there are other laws. So, I mean, I feel like, like Christmas I, lights. Yeah, exactly. I really, I mean, everything is different. It's so, it's so, you know, at least a recommendation that I have for anybody, if somebody's watching this and wants to start a distillery, I mean, do your research, like read the laws, find out what they are, where you want to start. I can give a, um, a very sad tale that actually affected a brewer that I know uh, that did not read the laws and set up their brewery thinking that they would have their tap room that would be a nice revenue stream. And they set up in a dry area. Oh, of the city. So, and they, and it, and it ultimately uh, killed their business. So I feel like, you know, doing the research is always good and, and figuring out the business environment. There's so many things to know about this business. It's not just, how to make the product. It's also what is the business environment? What is the legal environment? And, you know, politics and laws have gone sort of, or chased the liquor industry uh, from its very inception. So dog eating its own tail or snake eating its own tail. Mm -hmm. Coming from North Carolina, the laws here are Christmas lights on top of Christmas lights on top of Christmas lights. You Mm -hmm. certain counties just They've been dry since, you know, 100 years ago, and they are just now coming out of that now. Uh, Like I know where I grew up, they just started selling uh, spirits uh, at restaurants four years ago, five years ago. And if you're going to start a distillery, the the brewery business, the craft breweries uh, really opened up the door, I think, in terms of just that um, Bible Belt mentality that, that alcohol is bad overall. And Mm -hmm. I think once money changes a lot of opinions when it comes to that rhetoric. So Mm -hmm. once the money started flowing in, because, you know, we lost tobacco back in the 90s. So 
the alcohol business started booming and all of a sudden, oh, wow, this is generating a lot of income. Mm -hmm. Quick how it's amazing how quickly laws can change once gigantic amounts of money start coming into the picture. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's, it's actually been great for the state. I mean, and it's great for business. I mean, it's great for everybody. Economic impact of the industry. It is huge. And that's a lot of jobs. And as more craft distilleries open up, that's even more jobs. And, you know, these local sort of micro craft distilleries, they're very focused on, on their communities and they're, they're really a boom for, for so many things, you know, whether tourism or just, you know, the local guy that makes the boxes or whatever it is. I mean, there's so much, every manufacturing dollar is almost $2 into the economy. So, you know, we're manufacturers, you know, there aren't that many of us left in America these days. So, you know, we should be uh, celebrating. (laughs) I I completely agree because it's something that, like you said, it's got roots. It's going to affect every, everybody in the community can be a part of it if they allow themselves to be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good business. So I, I, I feel, you know, manufacturing is, is always great. Manufacturing jobs are great. So I, and manufacturers also offer a wide range of different kinds of jobs, you know, you, you, different, you, you don't need to go to Brown necessarily to work in a distillery and great, you know, and you can, have, you can do amazing things in this business. So it's, I think uh, it's, these are great businesses that states should really look at as uh, really beneficial on a lot of levels. Completely agree. Uh, and it goes, it's Americana. Like it's, it's, it, there's something about right. distilling whiskey and distilling spirits that just it is in the DNA of the history of this country. So it, yes, exactly. Uh, enough said, like the people that started this country, they, they were distilling whiskey. Why not mm-hmm. let us? Of course. Completely agree. And you guys don't only distill whiskey, right? You distill, I, I really love your gin bottle. The oh, gin bottles you. are just gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, they're they're impressive. I mean, they've won every design award. Our designers Dando projects are incredible. So, it, in fact, that bottle ended up in a design museum in Italy. So Really? Yeah. So, it's it's fun. It's a laser cut um embossed and foiled label. So it was really hard to do. And we were the first ones to do a label with that much cut out of it. Right. Um, in fact, they weren't sure it would work, but we did the math. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we were hopeful that it would be successful. And yeah, I've pretty- done packaging design and I've done like I, my background is in advertising. So I understand as beautiful as it is, that bottle ruins somebody's weekend. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it was, it was a tough one. We were, we were talking to our labeling company all the time. They're like, really? We're like, yes, do it. It'll work. <laughs> but you have to, you have to put that effort in because honestly, everything about your, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but everything about your marketing, I, I absolutely love you. You went from the traditional big block lettering and you've come in with this elegant sans serif font and just such a just your look and feel it has such a heightened look and feel it's it's very well done thank you yeah well i mean that's all dando projects i i could not draw a cow if my life depended on it it probably would end up without udders and so i i'm glad that that that, that you know we know when to get help and i think that's uh, that summarizes a lot 
of any business that's struggling in their first few years. If you're not the best at the thing you're trying to be the best at, then there's nothing wrong with looking to somebody who that is their, their bread and butter. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, that's key. Knowing where to go and who to get help from, I feel is, is really, that gets you down the road. Oh, totally. And it, it can save you years, like you reaching out to them and letting them do your marketing versus you trial and error, finally getting where it needs to be. That's not what you should be focusing on. You should be focusing on making delicious spirits. Exactly. Exactly. I, I am not a designer, so <laughs> but, but I know good design when I see it. So that, you exactly. Know. <laughs> so you've, you've got your license, you're distilling. You said something at the beginning of our conversation, you only use the heart. What, what does that mean? Absolutely. Well, you know, as I'm sure many of your, your viewers know, you, alcohol comes off a still, regardless of what you're distilling in three parts, really the heads, the hearts, the tails, you know, the acetaldehydes and all the creepy stuff, the stuff that might end up in a monster truck, you know, would be coming off first. It smells like nail polish remover. You don't want to ingest it. Um, hopefully all distillers remove it all entirely. Then you have the hard cut. That's the purest ethanol portion of the distillate, which is very bright and clean, uh, sort of the real sort of essence of what you're distilling. And then you have the tails, which are sort of diffusal oils, uh, other co other chemical compounds in there, similar to what you find maybe in vinegar or other things. Um, it's oilier. Uh, and the tails are great if, you know, they're aged over time, you know, and then they create a product that, that has uh, characteristics that come from those oils and come from, you know, all those chemical compounds that are in the tails. And that adds to the spirit. However, you know, we wanted to have a spirit that was very clean, not in the sense that, that, it, that spirits that have tails in them are not, but in the sense that spirits that have tails in them have other things in them, you know, right. aside from the, the, the purest part, the, the ethanol portion. And because we wanted to distill in a way in which sort of European brandy makers do, they also only use the hard cut because they're making a spirit that is drunk unaged. And if they were to add tails to an unaged spirit, it would not taste that great because those compounds without the benefit of the barrel and the charcoal filtering um, can be somewhat off-putting, although they can, they, they are, they're beautified, you know, one, once they are in a barrel. We, however, wanted to have a spirit that tasted great, you know, white, like a white dog or a new make as well as out of the barrel. And one that would give us our own identity as a whiskey distiller. And in using only the heart cut of the distillate, we've created our own style. Obviously a lot of other people use it. Uh, and particularly since we've educated so many people on how we do it, you know, we have people that have also, you know, joined into this sort of new school of craft distilling using only the heart cut, but it allows for a very clean and bright grain forward flavor. It's not as traditional as you'd expect from an American whiskey flavor profile. It is different. It, there's no value judgment there. It's just, we wanted to do something differently and with our own identity and it's, you know, and, and so it's going to be a little bit brighter and, and, um, when, when you taste it, even if it is uh, higher proof, it's still going to be really easy on the palate. 
because you don't always have those uh, the long ends uh, or the tails in there, uh, which can add a little more heat or or things of that nature when you're when you're drinking them. So that's what we went for. Um, it's a style that's like appreciated in Japan. Um, a number of Japanese distillers use the heart cut. That's not why we did it. And in fact, I I only you know learned that some of them do that later on as we did consulting in Japan and uh, and got very um, you know some knowledge of how they're they're making their products. But it's it's just uh, it's just a different style. But it's fun. We like it. Totally. And, and by using only the heart, does that make it easier to work with uh, other grains like millet and oat? And, uh, oat? You know, it, it, the, the, the ease of, of the grain isn't really based on whether we're using like the heart cut of it or not. I find that, that the ease of the grain is sort of how well it mashes. So some grains mash easily. You know, because we can, we'll get a heart cut no matter what we distill, you know, and that's right. just a matter of knowing when to make the cuts. But but the ease of working with the grain is really more in the mashing. You know, rye is incredibly viscous. Mm-hmm. And so working with something that's really sticky is uh, has its own challenges versus something, as I said, like millet, which is like vanilla frosting. It's like easy peasy, you know? So there's, there's different natures to each of these grains and how they are mashed and, and how they are distilled. They, they all pose their own sort of benefits and, and challenges. So, um, but yeah, I would say ease of use, you know, milk's very easy to use. Rye is, is a more difficult one to, to work with. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, so, which is your favorite? Like, or, or do you have a favorite? Do you, do you like all of them? Or, or like if, if you were going to the shelf and all of the, all of the spirits that you distill, which would you go to? Right. I think it would depend on my mood to be perfectly honest. And I Fair. feel that, you know, alcohol is very similar to uh, perfume. You like, you might like all of your perfumes or all of your colognes, but you're not going to, you know, wear them all, you know, you're, you're going to choose one, you know, for what, whatever you feel fits with the mood or the outfit or the, the day or the people you're talking to. So I feel that that's true also for alcohol. And, uh, and I think it's great that way because then you can pick different things for different types of, uh, exchanges, let's say, like different types of conversations or moods or celebrations or things of that sort. I would say, you know, and it, it also evolves and changes. And I like that too, because then it, it's able to help mark time. You know, it's like I go through various periods where, you know, there was a period where I was drinking a lot of rye and I would, you know, after work, you know, when we had the opportunity, you know, Robert and I would go and we would have maybe like a rye cocktail or a Sazerac or a rye Manhattan. And I was like, rye, rye, rye. And I remember that time period and I remember what we were doing and I remember what was going on in our business at that time. But then I sort of left that. And, and then I was doing, you know, I was drinking more bourbon. Um, and, you know, recently I've been drinking sort of four grain, uh, maybe by itself or with a bunch of squished cherries. Um, you know, it's, it really just depends on the mood. So I feel that, uh, the beauty is, is that we have so many choices. I mean, if we're, we're blessed with all these choices, then, then we can sort of like take them out and have them help us mark time and mark, uh, celebrations or conversations even Mm -hmm. so that when we go back to them, we have a way to transport our memory, you know, to a different time too. 
I love that answer. And I think that's 100% true. Uh, so many phases of what you're going through uh, on the on your shelf can take you back and almost like a song, almost like you'll hear a certain song and it'll take you back to a place in time where, yeah. where you were when you first heard it or where, where you were when you went through your Pearl Jam phase. It's exactly. the same. It's the same thing. Uh, doing this, I have the, um, the pleasure of now a lot of the things on my shelf as I take a sip I remember the conversation and and knowing more now about what goes into each of the bottles that I'm enjoying you 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 get that memory on top of the the flavor profile it's a it's a wonderful combination and I think the perfume is a great analogy for it because certain times you're in mood for certain different things right absolutely and and it's good that way I mean completely you know, there, and it's also, you know, there's some people that are very set in their ways. You know, you can be very Ron Swanson too. And just like, you know, always want to have like the same thing. And that it's, it's, but, and that's fine too, because that also sort of defines a person. And when people come in contact with that person, they know that that's going to be marked by a particular thing. So you can, you can be the same for yourself all the time, but that also becomes like something different for the people interacting with you. So I, I think there's a lot of beauty in it. Oh, completely. And I think that was the way it was for so long, just because prior to this, the latest boom and, and, and whiskey craze that we're kind of surfing right now, it was Coke and Pepsi. Like so many people, Jim Beam, Jack Daniels. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's, if that's your camp that you're in, you, you know what I mean? It, it just different strokes for different folks. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel that, uh, that it's fun. I mean, and that's why it's, it's fun to be able to drink things, you know, also just by themselves or to also have them in cocktails. So even within one particular product, you know, there are so many ways to enjoy it. So. Oh, very much. Uh, and, and back to the muscle memory, it's like every Christmas Eve, we would have Manhattans with my wife's grandmother. So mm-hmm. for, forever, Manhattans will be intertwined in my mind with Christmas with Eleanor. It, it's just, right. there's so many different things you can do with it. And every one of them can be used for a different scenario. Absolutely. It's lovely. So yeah, so that, that's sort of how I see alcohol. I love the Offerman uh, reference a moment ago too. <laughs> the, the Swanson, we've been trying to get him on for a minute now. I'm going I'm to track him down. I'm, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so Oh, yes. I, I've heard he's just also just a great guy. I, mm-hmm. I've been doing comedy for about 15 years now. And, and normally, if somebody's not a good dude, you, you, you hear about it. I've, I've never right. heard anything but awesome stuff about that guy. That's great. So, yeah, I, I still enjoy watching him. <laughs> oh, well, and you hate to learn otherwise. Like, right, like, for sure, for sure. Without naming names, sometimes you'll meet a hero and they'll... they'll and you're like, oh, oh well. <laughs> right, that's true. On to the next hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your husband's family, if you don't mind. Like a lot of, uh, he's third generation, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, they've been distilling, so very traditional Austrian. They own their own farm in Upper Austria, sort of where the hills are alive with the sound of music. And uh, and they uh, make a lot of brandies. So they also make most, which is a fruit. Um, it's it, Well, it's, it's like a pear cider, 
made from specific kinds of pears that you you have in in upper austria and so in fact he's a, he's an award-winning most producer too so that sounds but, amazing know, it's really very very tasty so so you know he'll he'll make his most and he'll make his uh his brandies out of pears out of apricots um and then they'll do a geist which is like a brandy but instead of mashing a geist you add the the whatever it is you're you're working with whether it's like strawberries or blueberries or something you'll add it to the still when you're distilling so it's more like making a gin as opposed to making a brandy where you'd mash it and the reason why you know you'd separate berries are usually geist as opposed to brandy because they mold very easily and so you'd get mash infections and that wouldn't be very tasty so that does not sound um, good no no, doesn't sound good at all. So, so you'd make a Geist instead. So they do that as well. And uh, yeah, they make some white whiskeys too. So it's, it's great. And they sell them to all of the local Moschenke, which is uh, the name for sort of like a, a place that sells it. It's sort of like a cider house. Okay. So they sell it to all the cider houses in the area and uh, and the community. So uh, it's nice. But now it's really funny because, you know, some of the same restaurants that are selling um, Robert's grandfather's alcohol have ours too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it's really it, it, sweet. So it's a nice story for the people in town. Most definitely. Well, his grandfather and your grandfather play a part in the name Koval, don't they? They actually do. It's really funny. They, um, when we were trying to figure out what to call our company, we were visiting my great uncle Sigmund uh, in in Brooklyn. He was in his late nineties, and you know we didn't think we'd see him again. And and so we we spent the whole day with him, and he was telling us lots of fun stories, and we were speaking German and. Then he told me about my, when we told him we were leaving our careers to start a distillery, you know, he told us, wow, that reminds me of your great grandfather. And I said, why? And he said, well, your great grandfather, he left Vienna. He, uh, you know, said Europe's over. I'm moving to America, started a battery company in Chicago and they gave him the nickname Koval. And I said, well, why did they give him the nickname Koval? Because he already had a nickname. His nickname was Monik, which was a nickname for Emmanuel. So they gave, uh, and he says, well, Koval uh, in many, Euro, you know, Eastern European languages means a schmied or blacksmith. But in Yiddish, it also means a little bit more. It, it means somebody who, like a blacksmith, forges ahead or forges something new. And so we thought, oh, what a cool, you know, what a cool name or, you know, that would be great for our company. And especially so because Robert learned how to distill from his grandfather, whose last name is Schmied, which is basically Koval in German. So it worked out. So it really honors both sides of the family. And the story actually gets better because as we were growing our company, you know, we kept running out of room. As I told you, you know, my poor landlord has us like putting glass, you know, containers next to his Porsches from the sixties. But uh, so we, uh, we, we were growing out of our space and needed to find a new space. And so finally about five years ago, we, saw this new facility and we were going to rent it, but it was so big and we were so nervous and it was such a big throw for us. And, you know, we're still 100% independent. So it's not like I have somebody else that can shovel money my way, you know, if, if we have to do a big investment, I mean, it, right. it like comes out of, you know, uh, everything that we have. So, well, I did get something in the mail yesterday for a 0% APR <laughs> for 24 go. months. 
There you go. You can send those to me. Yep, I'll just forward them your way. They're from City Card. Exactly. Um, but so we weren't sure about, uh, you know, being able to afford it, but there was nothing in the factory except for one thing. And so we were walking, walking, and we walk over there, and in the middle of the factory, I saw it, and I couldn't believe it. And it was a K&W battery. And, and that was my great-grandfather's battery company, which hasn't existed, by the way, since the 70s. So this was a relic. I mean, this was, like, amazing. And, I, and it I was said just to, there, just complete it coincidence. Just there. It was a complete coincidence. It was just wow. there. And I said to the, land, the guy that was renting it out, I said, if we rent this, could, I, could we buy this battery? He says, well, it's a battery charger. And the guys that were here last, they just left it. So you can have it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so we said, okay, we'll take it. It was sort of like one of those signs. And, yeah. uh, and it works. It works. It still charges our forklift. That's crazy. There that, you that's, go. That's like some German folklore right there. That's, I know, that's, right there. <laughs> that is insane. And you love to hear that. That's just such a good story. It, it, it the name, it's a great name. That is, that is every Thank part you. of that story is fantastic. It's been really, it served us well. And, and, uh, you know, to, to be in the factory, which we ultimately purchased. I mean, this, this ended up being, this is our home now for good. I mean, we, we got this building. So the fact that what, what made us get this building and what sort of pushed us to do this was my great grandfather's battery charger from the seventies. I mean, it was really, it's, it was awesome. Everything falling where it should. Yeah. That's amazing. And now you guys are all over the place. Like, like it's daunting when people are in the liquor store and now Koval for North Carolina, for it to be on the shelf in North Carolina, there's so many things that don't make its way down here, but you're on the shelf in NC. Uh, what would you recommend if somebody's at the liquor store and they're looking at a shelf of a hundred bottles that they've never had? What, what's your logic? What, what would you recommend to somebody looking to try Koval for the first time? Looking to try Koval for the first time? Well, you know, it depends on if they see a number of different Koval and their their heart is set on trying Koval, um, maybe they you know have an inclination towards uh, rye or slightly spicier you know whiskeys, and then I would go for the rye. If they like complex whiskeys, or they also are somebody who likes Scotch or single malts, I would say the four grain because it has malted barley in it. If they you know like a bourbon, I would definitely try our bourbon because it's so different than most bourbons. I think it'd be a fun thing to, to check out, you know, for somebody that really likes the bourbon category. Otherwise, you know, it's sometimes, you know, when you go into your local liquor store, you've got a guy, you know, and you say, Hey, we're having this for dinner. Can you recommend a wine? You know, and they probably also recommend, you know, whiskeys. And and if there's somebody you trust, you know, maybe they can make a suggestion and tell you why they would suggest that because they also know you, you know, they know the things that you've liked or the things that you haven't liked. And so that's, that could also be a good path. But at the end of the day, it's so, you know, dependent on the individual, you know, everybody tastes things differently. I mean, even we've, we've discovered now with regard to uh, a lot of uh, science that our taste buds, you know, taste everything all over. We used to think that it was like focused into specific spheres. And we now know that those original German studies 
um, while they, they spoke about certain parts of the tongue that taste things maybe a little more than, than other parts of the tongues, you have these receptors everywhere. And yet genetically, we taste things differently. So, you know, the cilantro is a very good example. Some people think cilantro tastes awesome. I do. I think it tastes me, great. Me as well. Yeah, but cilantro. some people think it tastes like soap. So, and I get it. And it's you know? always soap. I know they think it tastes like some form of soap. And, and so, I mean, that just goes to show you that, you know, the way we taste things is going to be very different. So ultimately, you know, it depends on everyone's own individual tastes. Most definitely. Uh, I, I, I take that approach when, when people ask me, uh, what, what are you drinking currently? Like, what is your favorite thing? And, and then we can kind of grow what you're looking for based off of what your comfort level is. Because if you're an 80 proof, um, if you're like an Angel's Envy fan, then I'm not going to send you to Stag Jr. right away. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that there are guideposts for sure. Um, and that can help people discover certain things. But, you know, I'm also a firm believer in trying things you don't like. I, I like, I feel like, you know, uh, the, in this day and age, we're often fed exactly what, you know, some algorithm thinks that we're going to like and want. And isn't that maybe, scary? It's, it's scary. And you know what, maybe they're right. But at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I feel as if there's some beauty in exploring and also being turned off by something or deciding why you don't like something or, you know, just having the, you know, the, the wide variety of experiences of trying different things. And it's, it's a journey, you know, and if you're always just landing on that, hit that they know you're going to like, okay, it's great. But you know, what else is out there in the world? And why do you like that? You know, what, what makes you like that? What, what don't you like to make you like that? You know? Right, so right. I feel like, um, you know, there's a lot that, 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 that you, there, you grow and you develop with experimentation and with trying new things and, you know, also, sometimes you, you, they say even with Baiju that you have to try it like 70 times before you like it. So I also feel like sometimes you have to try things a few times before you get, get really into it. Most definitely. And, and well said, everything that you've got going on, it might be different tomorrow. If you don't right. experiment with new things, your palate's never going to grow. Right. And, and luckily, the, you know, there's so many fun things out there to try, you know? <laughs> I, I never pass judgment on anything, no matter how many times I've had it. If I didn't care mm -hmm. for it today, maybe I wasn't in mm -hmm. the mood or maybe my, like, it's not always the drink's fault. Sometimes it's just right. where you are in your day. Because if I didn't like yeah. it on Monday, I might try it on Friday in a couple days of being open. I love it now. Or, or maybe I tried it with a little bit of ice the first time and that wasn't the way to go. You should always, everybody does it differently, but I always try to start neat just to see the basic right. taste of it before you add anything to it. Absolutely. I mean, and if you think about it this way, we also taste with our, you know, minds and with our stomachs too. So, you know, it's, it's also psychological. I mean, it's, it's the same way you can almost taste that cup of coffee before you taste it. You know, it's, you know, you're going to like it because you, you really want to, you know, have that coffee or you associate it with getting your day going or, you know, there are associations too that help you taste things. So 
you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe you'll, you'll like something that, that later you won't like just because the association is so wonderful, you know, the, it's, um, well, that's why I've not, I've not asked anybody their opinions on, on what you sent me. Cause, and thank you guys so much. You sent me three beautiful, uh, single barrel bottles uh, to try with you today. And I, I have kept them to myself. I have normally uh, somebody on the team will have tried it before or, or we'll, we'll all try it together after we have this conversation that you and I are having right now. But I have stayed away from everybody's opinion because I wanted to talk to you and go into this without any of those descriptors pre-existing in my mind. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it's an adventure. So we'll see where it takes you. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Um, and to anybody, I, I love the organic nature of your story and we kind of skipped over that entirely. Everything that you guys produce is organic, isn't it? Absolutely. Like that was really important to you guys when you got started. Yeah. When we started, we wanted to, you know, we weren't going to leave everything and, and do things, um, we, we, well, if we wanted to do it all ourselves, you know, we wanted yep. to do everything. So we worked with a cooperative of organic farmers. We, you know, do all of the, the milling of the grains on site. We mash everything ourselves. We distill everything ourselves. We bottle everything. I mean, we do it all. So there isn't anything that we do not do except for design because we <laughs> do that. Um, but you know, we, um, you know, so everything is done in house and we wanted it to be organic. You know, Robert's grandparents have an, their farm is organic. And, but for us with regard to organic is we felt that we were at the beginning of a movement really with craft distilling. And as we've grown, you know, our farmers have grown and they've planted more grain and it allowed them to switch their fields from conventional to organic, which is not easy. And it costs a lot of money and they have to be doing things the organic way uh, a few years before they're even allowed to say they're organic, which is sort of, you know, even more it, legal loopholes right it, there or, or hurdles, I should say. Yeah, they're, they're big hurdles. And so, you know, we thought that if we, you know, in, in being organic, it, it's also a way for us to support sort of sustainable agriculture and also, you know, farmers that are willing to go through all of this to switch over to organic fields, um, which we think is, is good for the soil. So in that sense, you know, and, and now there are other distilleries that we've set up that are also organic and, you know, and then there's more purchasing power behind organic grain. You know, there's more, uh, it, it helps grow that industry and grow organic, you know, farming. That's the first place my mind went was it's yet another, uh, uh, it's another stem of the whiskey business that's helping another right. uh, entire other grow, you know? Right. right. We're an agricultural industry. Yes. Yes. Oh, very much so. Well, um, you're so busy. What do you do when you're not doing this? Like, is this 24 hours a day for you? What do you do to relax? You know, I don't do much relaxing because I enjoy a lot of what I do. So when I'm not doing this, I work for a number of nonprofit organizations and, you know, do that. I think it's really important to give back to the community. And also that's a cornerstone of everything we do at Colval is we, we uh, are involved with at least 365 charitable organizations a year and donating to them and doing what we can. And, you know, as I said before, we wanted to be able to model things to our children. So hard work, very important. Yep. Important, but also giving back is also very important. 
And so these are the things we do. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm really just with family. There's a good railroad game. I forgot what it's called, but we've been playing that recently. It's fun where you build railroads. Oh, wow. Somebody will know, but it's fun. It's a fun family game. So that's, that's sort of what we've been doing, you know, as a family during all of this, you know, quarantine type time, uh, playing board games and, uh, yeah, my kids homework. <laughs> hey, homework. Uh, yeah. My kids have discovered a game. It's called Throw the Burrito. I don't know that. It's basically gin rummy. Only you can also collect uh, three or uh, there's different burrito cards. And if you collect three burrito cards, basically you all start throwing burritos at one another, like these little play burritos that come with the game. So you want to get out some pandemic stress on the children. Yeah. Hit a nine-year-old in the head with a burrito. You there feel you better. You feel so much better. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, and my kids do not know that one yet, but I will look into it because it sounds like they would <laughs> adore that game. <laughs> it, it's an interesting... We thought it was going to be so uh, dumb <laughs> when we got it because it just the name of it, throw the burrito. It just sounds weird. But yeah, there's something about all of a sudden uh, your five-year-old hits you in the head with a burrito and you see her feel better. It, it, right. It's just, it's yeah, like, it's great. It's great. I love it. <laughs> I will check it out. Yes, indeed. Uh, so you've sent me these wonderful bottles here today. Um, uh, which one? Are uh, you going to taste them with me? Sure. I, nice. I will start with the rye. Not start okay. with the rye? Very yeah, good. let's do it. Let's do it. Because uh, that was going to be my, my question is where do you want to? Hey, we're on the same page. I already poured one and it's the rye. There we go. Perfect. Perfect, though. And again, so, everything. Uh, the labels are beautiful. I, the oh, the smell is amazing. What what is the mash bill on this guy? A hundred percent rye. Yeah, yeah. Very easy. There you go. Uh, we don't use any of the. Um, we don't use malt to crack the starches. We use enzymes, so we have a clean. Uh, it's a very, um, and also I'm using clean here, not as a value judgment. I just mean that it allows us to maintain the integrity of the flavor of the rye alone without mm -hmm. having anything else added, without having malted barley, changing the nature of the flavor profile. This is only 100% rye. So I love it. I love it. You get a lot of bouquet. I, I mean, I feel like it's almost very floral and the white rye <clears throat> is incredibly floral. It almost smells like a perfume, which really surprised me when we were distilling it, that the rye has just got such a beautiful aroma to it. But I, I love the smell. And you get it as soon as you open the bottle. Yeah. Like, like as soon as it popped, it was like, oh man, Yet the, the flowers come through yeah. beautifully. Very sweet flowers. I mean, it's almost like like, you know, those, those, uh, sweet lilies. I mean, I mean, you're getting real sweet floral notes to it. So at least that's what I get. But oh, no, I completely, uh, floral was the first thing that popped into my head when it opened. I'm actually, after this, I'm going to dab a little behind each ear and go for a drive. So <laughs> exactly. I, if I get pulled over, I'm going to say, no, I've not been drinking. I just dab a little rye behind my ear before I leave go. the house. Exactly. It's my rye cologne. Um, but yes. And so, you know, and, and this is uh 40% alcohol by volume. So the other two that we'll taste are overproof. So this is, it's so, it smells so clean. Like, I, I don't know if clean is a proper descriptor, but it just smells clean. Yes. It's very bright. Um, very grain forward. You get the rye 
notes, you get a little of the spiciness, um, but it's just a very, you know, bright, I love the sort of candy, uh, maple candy, you know, that you sort of get from it. Oh, you're speaking uh, my language. I'm, I'm going in for, I'm going in for a sip. Okay. I, so, I already did. I already, so I, I, I'm, I'm going for a sip with you too. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> Oh, and it drinks clean too. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. What is that on the second half of it? Mm. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, I, I almost get candied orange, but I, I, it, I, I think everybody might get something different. It, uh, candied fruit of some kind. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can- candied was the word that was eluding me. Mm-hmm. But you still get that sort of spiciness, you know, that you get with rye. It, you it's, get the sp- uh, yeah, you oh. still get sort of the spiciness, and it's um, it's just it's a very rye experience. <laughs> oh, I absolutely adore this. It is, it's so clean. Everything about it, you get that. Oh, the second sip's even better. The second sip, it's like now traveling your entire tongue. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a fun it's a fun spirit. I think it it works really well with a number of cocktails. I mean, a rye Manhattan, it's it's delicious. I love a Sazerac with this rye. I think this rye works beautifully with the Sazerac. It's all the flavors just really come through. Um, and it's one hundred percent rye. One hundred percent rye. Nothing else in it. This is this is a great starting point. If this is where we're starting, then this is, do you ever stop and think that this is what we get to do with our days? I, we're so lucky. I mean, right. that's business outside show business, if not better. Hey, so. I think right now you're winning. I, I, it's been, it's not been a great year for show business. Let me tell you. Exactly. So there you go. We, we've overtaken. <laughs> you really have. And plus you guys can still get your product out there to people. I've got people yeah. booking me for shows where they can't have more than 25 seats. It's hard. It's really rough. Yeah. Oh, I, I kind of want this to be like a complete sensory experience. I want a candle that smells like this, that I can light while I drink it. Mm-hmm. And then I want to make like a glaze with it to put on salmon for some reason. Oh, it's funny. I, I have done glazes before. I've also, I put it into a lot of different cakes as well. I've done that before. Oh, I could see it being super good in like an apple cake. Mm-hmm. Just that spice that comes with it. Well, you know, those kinds of apple cakes that have the brown sugar on the top that caramelizes and then you put that on top. Mm. All right. Uh, you're going to think I'm lying. So I will, sh- I'll send you a picture after we, uh, after we talk. I just literally made one of those on Tuesday. I, I, no I do- way. Yeah, I do not do well with uh, idle hands. So if I've got a free moment, I'm either building something, baking something, writing something, or talking whiskey. That's awesome. Well, what a good thing to bake. Oh, my God. Well, you get that brown sugar glaze on the top of it, and then you let that sit there until it hardens, you know? Absolutely. I think we're both getting hungry as well. I, I could could go for a slice of that. If you could only send it through the (laughs) internet, I would. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll be able to mic TV. We'll mic TV that stuff over to you in the next five or 10 years. I I would not doubt it. I would not doubt it. I'm sure Amazon's already doing it in house somehow. (laughs) I I love how that guy, he's, he's trying to build goodwill towards himself with the public by going, we'll go out of business one day. Did you see that? No, I didn't. 
He's like, oh, yes, Amazon will probably go bankrupt at some point. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're not giving us a time frame. 200 years from now, I'm sure somebody will mess it up for you. But right now you're on a yacht the size of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm, probably, probably. Well, so where are you taking me next? I'm taking you to Bourbon Town. Hooray. I love Bourbon Town. Me too. I think Bourbon Town's a good place to be. So bourbon, our bourbon's different in that this is 47% alcohol by volume. So it's going to be much stronger than the rye. It has a mash bill of 51% corn and 49% millet. So ah. millet makes a uh, an appearance. It is... Um, even though it is, uh, you know, a much higher proof, I think for bourbons, it still is quite smooth, but that's just my opinion. So, you know, others might have a different idea, but let's see. I love the, the nose is a, com- it's, it's complete own identity from the rye. Oh yeah. Very much so. Oh, what is that? You know, I, I've often thought of sort of mango chutney, but, uh, you know, there's sort of mango chutney, a little. Um, I love how complex it is. It's it's yeah. not just sweet. You're definitely getting oh, another note. Definitely. Oh. You know, the millet also adds kind of almost an herbaceous character to it a little bit. I mean, it's it's. Um, is that is that what it is? Because I can't I can't put bit. my finger on bit. the second thing, which would make sense because I've never had millet before. Right. Yep, and then I'm excited. Brost. Brost. Mm. Clean. Everything you make is so clean. It's because the style is the same. Yeah, for all of them, we distill everything the same. So it's going to only be the hard cut for each one. So the that kind of feeling and approach to the spirits, regardless of what the mash bill is, is going to come through. I love how this takes your entire tongue over. Like it starts at the front and works its way to the sides and then the back. It's literally yeah. working the room right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still getting it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. The finish is delightful. It's long. It is, it is. I never thought as a grown man I would be saying delightful. <laughs> yeah, no, this has a very long finish. Oh, and there's a nice, it's, it's got levels to the finish. There's a nice spice right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm a fan of millet. I'm going to have to go get a bottle of your millet as well. Yeah, and then taste them next to each other and you can yeah. see it. Oh, that's my favorite thing. I absolutely love uh, mm-hmm. uh, back when the toasted barrel craze came last year or the year before. Everybody oh, was like... We did it at the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, it was like one of our biggest mistakes. Not biggest mistakes, but we approached this very academically. We said, okay, wouldn't it be interesting if we did a rye that was a white rye, a toasted barrel rye, and a charred barrel rye, and an oat that was toasted and charred and white, and a millet that was white and charred and toasted. And we did this with like five grains. It was insanity. And so, of course, everybody had their favorite and nobody could find their favorite because, you know, one liquor store would have like toasted oat and another liquor store would have, you know, the, the charred rye. And another, so that was, that was definitely, we had to hone it down a little bit. 
<laughs> but that's the beauty of when you start, you put everything out there. You're just excited to be doing something. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. And, and, and it is fun to sort of look at the grains, you know, and see what they are, you know, completely sort of pretty much unadulterated and white. And then, you know, in the various chars of the, of the barrel, they definitely add different things to the spirits. So you know, it is fun, but oh, very know. fun, and even more of a reason for people to go visit you guys in Chicago so that they can sit down and try these things right next to one another in a flight. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Oh man, I uh, I'm enjoying talking to you. I hope I, we're going a little longer than we thought we would. Right. But I'm this this is absolutely I like it a lot. Mm, I'm so glad. Yeah, I mean. I think the bourbon's fun. We also say that our bourbon is sort of a gateway bourbon. I, I, I mean, it's it's I can sort see of that. appropriate terminology, but it's a bourbon that is not um, so bourbon. Right. You know? right, 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 right. It, it's more bourbon. Right, right. But that's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, exactly. The- I mean, it is officially and legally in every way bourbon, but because we use the millet, it it changes the the flavor profile so much from what you expect when distillers use the usual suspects of malted right. barley, rye, um, and uh, wheat. So because we steered clear of all of those usual suspects, the flavor profile is just so completely different. And it's a little bit uh, softer in some ways than some bourbons on the market. It's 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 very it's it's a chill bourbon. It's a very chill bourbon. That is a perfect way to describe this. This is an easy sipper. It's one of those. I, I feel like people like to put things in boxes unnecessarily, like especially every dis- distiller that I've talked to. They've all been so chill and nice and friendly. But when you get people drinking it, all of a sudden, everybody gets very judgmental and uh, reviewers specifically want to put everything in a box. I, I think it's all something that you can enjoy at different times, at different places. It's like you were saying a moment ago, it, it's, it's, there's a place for every bourbon you've ever had in your, in your day. It just depends on where you are in that day. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, what, are you going to badmouth one pasta over another pasta? I mean, it's really subjective. So it's like, well, now that you bring it up, Okay. Uh, All right. Maybe, maybe you are, but (laughs) um, pasta can kiss it. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) No, I I kind of agree with you there, but (laughs) It, it just gets so, um, so gummy. Yeah, no, that's true. That is true. But if you're out there and you like whole wheat pasta, there's nothing wrong with that either. There you go. More, you know, more power to you. It's more like, power to you. You've you opened go. up your pasta channel. Exactly. Uh, I, I love the smell. Like a, a lot of times the smell doesn't follow you as you drink it. The the the, the nose continues to hit you even after mm-hmm. you're like while you're sipping, it's still getting up there. That's great. Wow. Okay. You you are you are batting a thousand right now. Oh, girl, that's so exciting. I love it. It makes me happy. Um, all right. So now uh, we will go to the four grain, okay. which is um, probably our most sort of complex whiskey. If we're talking about sort of flavor profiles, this is going to be the most complex one. Uh, this the is Mash the one Bill. I've really been looking forward to. I, I've not had a lot of experience with four grain. 
Great. So- yeah. It's, it's a fun, uh, it's sort of a new category in that there are a bunch of distilleries making four grain whiskeys now. So we're sort of, we're making it a category. Nice. Uh, and it's, it allows for uh, some really nice complexity when you mash four different kinds of grains together, you know, you get something really fun. I mean, if you think about making a bread, if you're adding like different kinds of grains to it, it's going to be a more complex bread than just a single grain bread. So this is a mash bill of oat, malted barley, rye, and wheat. I will uh, disclose that it is more oat and malted barley than anything else. Okay. Uh, so heavy on the oat and malted barley and a little bit less on the rye and the wheat, but they're all there. It is also overproof, so it is 47% alcohol by volume, similar to the same proof as the bourbon. Um, It's going to have different kinds of, you know, flavors and aromas, uh, I would say to a great extent because of the malted barley really adds uh, a lot of difference, you know, to it, as well as the oat, which adds something to the mouthfeel. So oat is sort of a different kind of mouthfeel than you get from like a rye or some of the other grains. And if you think about it, sort of eating, you know, eating oatmeal, it's, it's, it's got that sort of creaminess to it. And you, you'll probably get some of that on the mouthfeel. I'm loving this nose. It's got a very, is it, am I getting like a spearmint or like a minty? I've heard a lot of people say that, to be honest. I, I, I don't get that as much, but I've, you know, in classes that I've done and, and tastings, I've heard that often. So I'm sure it's there. Where um, the rye... I get a little banana nose to it. Oh, okay. A little bit. I get a little bit of sort of like um, cream soda, like, like a little like muted sweetness, almost that you get kind of like in that sort of cream soda sort of thing on the nose. Right. Where the rye... I feel was like your lighter, more floral. Uh, yeah, it's way el- more floral. I, I I don't want to say feminine, but like it has that elegance to it, like a like a lighter <laughs> floral elegance. This smells more masculine. Like this has like a heft to it that like it really it it comes at you more right. than like uh, uh you don't go to it, it comes to you kind of thing. Yes, th- this 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 could very much. Uh, you know, go with a, a leather armchair. Yes, a yes. <laughs> I, I, I can t- completely pair this with a cigar. I'm, I'm getting hints of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I do want to kind of, uh, this is another one. If I'm, if I'm, I'm going to have a room, I'm going to have two rooms, one that smells like the rye, one that smells like the four grain. I'm just going to go mm-hmm. back and forth from them. Neat. Yeah. Although I'd say of all of them, honestly, I love the bouquet and the rye the best. I feel Agreed. like Agreed. it's so, uh, it's so it's surprisingly floral and inviting. It, yeah, it really hits you in an amazing way. These are more complex. So it's not, I feel like it's, these are tighter also because they're higher proof. You know, yes. so I, I guess, you know, they would open up even more if somebody added a little water, you know, if we were to get closer to a 40% alcohol uh, proof, it would, it would open all the flavors, all the aromas that you're, you're sensing right now would open even more. But I still think even when opened, I, I just love the aroma of the rye. It's oh, just very much. So uh, my wife's palate is so much better than mine. I, I, not never going to dispute that. I cannot wait for her to try this rye just because it's it's right in her wheelhouse. I, I she's going to absolutely adore it. Oh, great! 
Cheers. Cheers. Prost. Prost. You can see this is very uh, full body. Mm-hmm. What did you say? Full bodied. Yes, 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 yes. Ooh, very good though. Like it, like the. Oh, I definitely get the cream soda you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I get that sort of in the back of my mouth. Also, mm-hmm. it's sort of that sweetness that you smell, and then it sort of opens up into like a almost a cream soda type sweetness in the back of your mouth. Very much so. Like this one hits you everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not concentrated. The bourbon made its way like shaking hands at the end of a party. Mm-hmm. This guy, uh, he he he's just the party. <laughs> Yeah. I always look away when I'm trying to figure out what it what what I'm tasting just because I think it's a little weird right. if I'm staring at you while I'm going like yeah, you, get right, a, right. <laughs> you get a little guppyish on it. No worries. It's very enjoyable. Mhm. I've been known to enjoy it quite mm-hmm. a bit. And there is still that hint of floral at the end of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does have rye in it for sure. And it is distilled in the same way. So, you know, uh, I've enjoyed all three. I think the rye is my favorite. Mm-hmm. I, I think I could see the whiskey, the, the, the bourbon being my uh, daily sipper. I think that mm-hmm. is just a clean, very flavorful choice. If you're going at the end of the day to grab right. something, I mm-hmm. think the rye, if you're going to treat yourself to something, that the rye is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, I mean, it's as I said, you know, I've gone through many a rye sort of phase where, you know, I was I was doing a lot of rye in, in, in different kinds of cocktails and just by itself. Um, just because, you know, just the visceral nature of, of taking something, bringing it close to your nose and just getting enveloped in that aroma, it's, it's, it's lovely. Oh, most definitely. I've never understood people's hesitation towards rye. I, I think I almost like it better than bourbon right, right now. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the rye. You know, because every rye is going to taste different in the sense that, you know, and also some ryes have different grains and, you know, some ryes have wheat in them. And so that's going to change the flavor profile. It's going to change the aroma. So it really depends on, on which rye. Also, it depends on the proof. I mean, there's so many factors. Oh, totally. And it's all, it's all good. Like it's, it's, it's I, everything that you have sent me is so clean and so pure that the organic and the heart and the purity that goes into your distilling method comes through in the flavors. I'm glad that that's what we're going for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the consistency that I think keeps people coming back. So uh, that's an important part. And that's also one of the, the things that our still helps us with in that our still is, it is a pot still with hybrid. So it's a pot hybrid still. And with that, it's also fully uh, automated, not automated in the sense that we're not running it. We're running it actually all the time, but it's automated in the sense that there are sensors absolutely everywhere. We are never flying blind. So if there's one temperature off, we can quickly go and adjust it to make sure that there's consistency because we don't want to be flying blind while we are 
distilling. We want to make sure that there aren't any, you know, things happening in the still that we can't see that are going to affect the flavor, that it's going to affect the aroma of it. We want there to be a level of consistency, even though we have single barrels, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just important to us. And the nature of our still with its deflagmator um, on the top of the column it is a good word, isn't it? Yeah. Have your kids spell that one. No, with the deflagmator on the top of the column, which allows for, you know, uh, more of a, of a rectification level, you know, when it gets to the top, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful still that allows us to have this kind of consistency. Um, and we're able to see everything that's going on. And in fact, we're able to collect sort of big data so that we can go back and find out, you know, what, you know, what, what was the even, right, right. You, know, um, it's, you know, grain that was harvested at a particular time, if we distill it at a particular time, you know, is the yield going to be greater or less, you know, so there's a lot that we can do in having it completely hooked up to sensors that monitor the flow rate, the temperature. Um, and also, obviously, we're monitoring how much we get out of it, um, and how big the heart cut is and, and everything. So it's, it's, it's great to have the right tools. Completely, completely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just sounds as methodical as your process is. It just plays into like, like I, I, I have not met your husband, but I can just uh, picture the two of you both enjoying every aspect of this. It just it's methodical, but with like an art behind it. It, it just feels like a very good combination of both. Yes, there's art and science to all of this. So it's been my favorite part so far. Like you can control as much of it as you can control, but at the end of the day, there's still parts of it that are just your your X variable. And those are the parts that make the art. Absolutely. Absolutely. Delicious. Uh, well, I have kept you for a while now. I thank you so much for your time. I always like to ask people before they go, uh, if there was a Mount Rushmore of distillers, who would you put on that Mount Rushmore? Yeah, and if my Mount Rushmore could be, you know, with distillers from anywhere, not just here. Oh, I mean, please. It- yeah, it would be sort of an interesting Mount Rushmore. I feel like um, on my Mount Rushmore would also be George Washington. And the reason being is not just because he was a distiller and he made a great rye, you know, <laughs> and since we've been talking about rye a lot, I think that it's, uh, if you were to have a Mount Rushmore of distilling, I think that it would also let people know that distilling and politics are completely intertwined and always. So I think that having him there um, would be very insightful uh, with regard to just the nature of distilling in general. So, and he was there at the beginning, you know, he quelled the first whiskey rebellion and, you know, had his own distillery. So I think that he deserves to be up there. I think Maria Hebrea um, deserves to be up there. She uh, created the first uh, alambic or very like rudimentary alambic still in ancient Egypt. Um, And so she sure deserves to be up there. Um, I would also put Nathan Nearest Green up there, Uncle Nearest, Mm -hmm. in part because I think that with all of this, there are always people 
that are not always in the front, but are the ones that actually are doing things and are the ones that have created it and the ones that know how to do it best. And he, you know, taught Jack Daniels uh, how to do it. And, you know, it's Jack Daniels was amazing to have wanted to do this and start at the age of 14, which clearly would not be possible today. Um, but, uh, you know, he taught him how, and I think that he has a very, um, interesting place in, in distilling history, uh, particularly for this country. Um, and, and of course, you know, how much he helped Jack Daniels and everything. So there's that. And then I would say, um, uh, Mesa Takatsuru. Uh, who is the distiller that started uh, Nika whiskey in part because I feel that, you know, distilling is an international affair and it doesn't always have to come from places where you think it's going to come from. You know, we know of all the great, you know, we know about John Jameson and we know William Grant and we know, uh, you know, all, all these great, you know, stories that, that we all know about, but you know, these, there are stories from all over the world. And I think that that's important to highlight, but I also think that what he's done is, is he's created beautiful products. And I feel that we as distillers are creating something that is, is a, it's an item of beauty, both on the inside and the outside. And I think that some of the products that he's come out with in the bottles uh, have been pretty impressive. So I, I would put that out there for um, beauty and international nature of the business. And that would be my, my group. That I, I knew you were going to have a good answer, but that is a phenomenal answer. Like all of those, you touch on everything right there, and it's well, you were all you. You, you, you were you were uh, spirit storytellers. You know, every every bottle that you produce is telling a different story, and I think Caval's doing it wonderfully. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and thanks for giving me an opportunity to tell some of these stories and no, talk about no. our products and our distillery. I was getting so excited as I researched you guys uh, just because I, I, I love smart people and, and both you and your husband come across as just brilliant. Very sweet. No, we just are up late reading. <laughs> We're just trying to catch up all the time. <laughs> I don't know if that's smart. It's just lack of sleep. <laughs> I, I think that is the, uh, I think that's, that can be all of us from time to time, but you guys seem to be focusing your lack of sleep in a good direction. Uh, (laughs) I I tend to art history. I, I, I keep, I haven't figured out how to make whiskey with art history yet, but I I'm sure I'll figure out a way. There's definitely been a lot of art in, uh, in the whole whiskey story. So I'm sure you'll figure it out. (laughs) If if nothing (laughs) else, I am, I am more than happy being, uh, the, the, conversationalist to the whiskey there you go well that's that's that is you're weaving a tapestry there we go there we go do your show (laughs) well and thank you so much for being on i appreciate it i've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you uh uh, the next time i am booked in chicago i am going to make it a point to come visit you guys please do we can't wait to see you and you know maybe by then we'll be able to have our bar open and our visitor center and our patio which of course we were going to open this year and couldn't because of of, uh, everything that's going on so hopefully we will have a lot to celebrate when you come and uh yeah and we hope everybody comes and visits. 
Yes, as they should. I, I, I can't recommend enough how much people should go and have multiple side by side. I think that would just going uh, through these three is so eye opening to what you can produce. I can't imagine just sitting down and going through the run of them. It, it just the flavors that you guys are creating are awesome. Right. It'd, it'd be fun. Maybe we'll have some buckwheat spirit around when people come and visit left too. So we, we yes. love doing fun, exciting things. So we'll always have something up our sleeves when people come and visit. That's beautiful. Uh, you guys are anything but boring. And I, I, I think <laughs> everything you're doing is just so interesting and Thank very, so very much. tasty. Thank you so much. Well, in, in good spirits, I wish you everything well and good health and many things to celebrate this year. Same to you. Happy New Year and Prost. Prost. Ciao. There you have it, everybody. That is my conversation with Dr. Son at Berniker Hart. We want to thank her so much for her time. It was just an absolute, I, again, delight. I, I didn't know I was going to become a person that said absolute delight so often, but it, it really was. It was an absolute delight talking to this woman. She was just so knowledgeable about bourbon and the passion for what she does, I think, really comes through in the conversation. So thank you so much, Dr. Berniker Hart, for being on the program today do yourself a favor go pick yourself up a bottle of koval it, it, it's that damn good it's it's interesting it's unique it's not going to be like everything else on your shelf you're going to get like something from it that you're not going to find in in some of the other bottles that you're always on the lookout for so if, if i could make one suggestion it would be I, I would go get a bottle just just try it get to get the uh definitely get the rye and then pick another one so that you can go back and forth and see the differences between them because some are subtle, some are extreme, but it's all so enjoyable. So thank you so much for being on the program. We appreciate your time. And for everybody uh, listening, if you would, please just go leave us a like on iTunes. Hit subscribe. Leave us a review. Leave us a five star. Leave us a four star. Leave us a three star. It doesn't matter. Just engage with us and let us know what you're thinking of the program. We appreciate all of the support that we're getting from everybody every week as the, the, the group grows and our community widens so thank everybody for just coming back every week and my name is jesse jones we'll be back next week with uh i think angels envies on the program next week so be on the lookout for that we talked to wes henderson and it is the season finale of the bourbon showdown so maybe i should have started with that next week's the season finale guys that's insane of all the people we've talked to so far and now we're going to come down to the last episode of the first season so be be back for that it's a fun talk him him and i get into a few things so come on back and we'll see you next week my name is jesse jones this is the bourbon showdown podcast raise your glass and kick some ass i'll see you guys next week goodbye everybody goodbye